Our Bible reading comes today from Revelation chapter 1, the Revelation to John. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look! He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance, endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair on his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here ends the reading of God's word. So we're swiftly nearing the end of our Garden to Garden City journey. Um, and before we, get start, <coughs> before we get started with looking at Revelation today, uh, I just need to let you know that we have a really important announcement to make to church uh, before the end of our time together. So after our discussion questions um, and the song that follows, can you just stay where you are, um, even if you're on coffee or whatever, just stay here. We've got a couple of things we need to chat about. Um, but that's for then, and so now that I've whet your appetite, uh, let's think about the book of Revelation. Um, yeah, so we're, we're nearing the end of our Garden to Garden City journey, and over the last couple of weeks we've looked at a number of the key doctrines, the key ideas in the New Testament writing. So the reason we're not looking at each individual letter uh, in, the, um, in the New Testament is because they often overlap in thought and they don't really t help us to think about the overarching story of Scripture. But the book of Revelation does. It is where the story finds its great conclusion. So in the last couple of weeks, we saw some of these key ideas in the New Testament writings. Firstly, how we are justified, how our sins are forgiven by Jesus uh, on the cross as he suffers for our sins. We saw how our justification enters us into a new family, a church family, whom we are to love and serve. And then last week, we looked at how we are to live in response to this. We saw how, um, because we are made right with God, we are justified, we, we have gratitude for that, and that kind of is this engine room of our obedience, of, of living out our lives for God. And so uh, we obey God because we love Him in light of His mercy, and so we go through this life uh, being made more and more saintly, which is the thought of sanctification. But now we're going to turn to the final part of the story that we have been tracking since Genesis chapter 1. We're at the end of the Bible, and um, here we see the final part of the big picture story. Uh, it's a story about the future. Uh, what comes next? Well, before we delve into that, we need to think together for just a moment about how we are to actually read Revelation. How do you come to understand this book? It is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted books of the Bible. And that's partly because Revelation is a weird book with locusts and dragons and swords coming out of people's mouths with fiery eyes and stuff like that. There are sea monsters and, and um, all kinds of really strange things. So that's one reason why we misunderstand and misinterpret Revelation. But the second reason is because of what goes on in our hearts as we approach the book. You see, the book is written in what's called an apocalyptic genre. Uh, it apocalyptic literature has all kinds of symbols and thoughts and ideas and because we understand how apocalyptic literature works we can deal with the fact that there are beasts and monsters and dragons and dudes with flaming swords coming out of their mouth but as we explore it over the next few weeks we will look at some of these symbols and and help us to understand that they too 
are part of telling this bigger picture story. But the bigger difficulty is about what goes on in our hearts when we read Revelation. You see, Revelation is a book that shows us the certainty of our future, but it does so in a way that needs interpretation. But the problem is we, like everyone, want to pin down the future. We, we want to do that because when we can do that, we have a sense that we are in control. We feel like we're on top of things. If we knew that Jesus was to return on the 17th of December, 2056, uh, then we would have our lives kind of figured out and sorted. In our hearts, we start to think, well, if that's the case, then I can just quickly do some, some repentance on the 16th of September, 2028, and live the rest of my life as I choose up until that point. And actually, so much ink has been spilt on exactly where we are in the timeline of Revelation. Books and papers and diaries and thoughts and um, uh, journal papers and everything have been written on the subject, but it's all kind of pointless. Because Revelation is the conclusion of a story that's been written since the Garden of Eden. It is the end of the story and it's not trying to tell us when these things will happen. It is the end of the story that tells us why all the things in Revelation is happening. And why we have been travelling all the way from the Garden of Eden. And so as we think about how to read this book, how to read Revelation, there's a couple of principles of interpretation we need to keep in mind. The first is that Revelation is part of a story we've just talked about. The next one is that Revelation is about Jesus's kingship, his great and maj uh, majestic kingship over the world. It is a book about majesty, about the glory, the power of Jesus Christ, the ruling king. If we lose sight of this at any point and focus on the locusts or the dragons, then we've misunderstood what the book is all about. It's like um, when you watch your, you know, just imagine, for example, you were to watch your favourite book uh, as a movie uh, and you see just snippets of the main character. It's a scene here, a scene there, a scene here. It doesn't make sense if you try to interpret a movie that way. It would fail completely if it was just these random snippets if, and, and especially if the main character was taken out of that uh, cut-together thing. But that's often how we read the Bible. Uh, we forget that the main character is Christ. And this is particularly true of the book of Revelation. When we try to read Revelation, apart from seeing Jesus as the main figure, it just doesn't make sense. And so when we approach this book over the next several weeks, without seeing it as a book that is primarily about Christ, about His majesty, His glory, His power, His victory then we've gone very far astray. It's true, Revelation is a book that is full of surprises, full of drama, full of symbolism and twists and turns, and we have to be careful that we don't push down too much onto the details of this book and the various visions. In the end, this is a book that points us to the fact that Jesus is coming back in glory and power and how He will one day fix the world when He does. Revelation is about Jesus. That's principle number two. Principle number three is that Revelation is not a modern book. Now, we cannot read it like uh, a book you pick up from the, from the store. We can't impose the way we think literature should work on the way this book is read. 
The book does move from one point to another, but it's not a history book. It doesn't unfold in a kind of linear fashion. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. So as we explore the book, we have to remember that. Also, it's a book full of symbols. And as we go through, there's a whole bunch of different symbols. And as we do that, we'll explain them. But we, don't have, we have to try to be not too ambitious. Not every symbol in this story will make sense to us. And not every image is meant to mean something to us. It's kind of like the parables uh, in, in Scripture. There is a point to the story, but you don't have to understand all the details to understand the point. We have to see the forest by not focusing on the trees, if you like. That's principle number three. So it's about Jesus' kingly return. It's not a modern book. Uh, it is a book, though, that is written to encourage the church. So we have to keep in mind that Revelation was written to encourage the church at a time of persecution. We see that John here finds himself on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled for preaching the gospel. He says it's because of the testimony of Jesus that he's there. And it's meant to encourage the church that Jesus is in control no matter what happens here on earth. There are these seven lampstands in John's vision and Revelation explains to us that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor at the time. And as we go through the book, often an angel or the Lord himself will explain what these symbols are. And here we have these seven lampstands standing for the seven churches. And seven is a highly symbolic number in the book of Revelation. It, it represents perfection, it represents fullness and completeness and so what is written here is for the complete wholeness of the church. What John wants us to understand is what follows in the book of Revelation is applicable to all of the church everywhere, the full number of the churches. And so what does he see? He sees among the lampstands is one like the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favourite title for himself. He himself, Christ, is standing among the churches. And this is encouraging to us. You see, where a pure gospel is being proclaimed, where people are working towards the Lord's end, where we gather as God's people, Jesus is present there with us. He's present with us when things go well, as it does in some of these churches, and he's present with us when things go poorly as in some of these other churches. These seven churches were under persecution and we might get tempted when, to think that when people turn against us or when there's opposition to the gospel, that Christ has abandoned us somehow, that he's not blessing our ministry, that he's just not with us. But here we see the truth. Jesus does not forsake his truth, no, his church. He is present here with us today. Christ is present with his church today. We stand today on the other side of a major election uh, that was won by our existing premier. And this is a man who is militantly against the church in Victoria, who has uh, overseen laws that has outlawed praying for certain people under certain circumstances, even though they actually seek it because the government has decided that it is bad for those people where churches and ministers face jail time or hundreds of thousands of dollars in fine for failing to comply to the Premier's wishes. We live in a time where Christianity is marginalised and vilified and living at a time like this, we can ask, 
Where is Christ? Where's Jesus in this? You know, I thought Jesus was king. We sing about his majesty. We sing about him reigning on high. Doesn't he care what happens to the church here in Victoria? Revelation chapter 1 gives us the answer. Jesus is right there, standing amongst the lampstands. He's right there, present with his people. He's present with us. But now notice he's present in very specific ways. So John is writing to give the church hope, and he, he, he gives the church hope through Jesus' presence in specific ways. Firstly, the church has hope because Jesus is this kind of glorious being. You know, he speaks to John, and as John turns, he sees Jesus standing in his majesty. He stands between the lampstands, but he's got this robe, this uh, robe with a golden sash across his, his chest. He has perfect snow-white hair, which I always thought was quite interesting. He's kind of like Gandalf, like in Lord of the Rings, after he's died and come back, Gandalf the White appears. But unlike Gandalf, Jesus' eyes blaze with fire. His feet are bronze. His voice booms like falling water. There is a sword coming from his mouth and his face shines radiantly like the sun at full strength, which is an interesting thought. I didn't know the sun went brighter and weaker. This is the vision that John gets of the glorified Christ standing here amongst his churches. There is this glorified, majestic Jesus standing among the seven lampstands. And now notice how he's described. He has this golden sash wrapped around his chest. This is a vision of the clothing that a priest would wear. So we see here that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament priesthood. He is our great high priest. And as our high priest, because he has atoned for our sins, the church has hope because our sins are already paid for. Though it is true that we are sinful people, Jesus can stand right here with us because our sins, the church's sins, are covered over by our great preach. Indeed, boldly, we can approach the throne because we are clean before God because the high priest is doing his work. He's there in the inner sanctuary interceding for us with God. Isn't that amazing? No longer does those who believe in Jesus need to fear the Lord's wrath. He has fully punished all our sins in Christ Jesus, who has borne the wages of our sin, death, on his shoulders as our atoning sacrifice. That's what this clothing, priestly clothing, reminds us of. So the church can have hope because of that. But the church also has hope because he is profoundly wise. He's presented as this great sage. That's why his hair is white like wool. That's what we're supposed to understand. We shouldn't miss that Jesus is describing here um, like the Son of Man in, in Daniel. We see it in chapter 7. Uh, John wants us, if, if you read Dan, Daniel chapter 7, you see an image of the Son of Man with white hair like this. John wants us to understand something of the agelessness of Christ. We can have hope because though the world changes, he does not. 
He has a kind of eternal wisdom to guide the church. Just like God the Father who is and who was and who is to come, we see the ageless nature of Jesus here. And in the Old Testament days, in in Israel, people were revered for their maturity and their wisdom. Today, if you have a boat that can only bear the weight of one person, uh, like a lifeboat on on a ship, and there are two people in the ship, there's an old person and a child, who do you put in the lifeboat? All of us will say, you put the child in the lifeboat, they haven't lived their life, the old dude, he can die because he's had his time. Um, But that's not how it worked in the olden days, in the days of Israel. They would have put the old man in the boat because they revered wisdom. And this is how Jesus is shown to us as this super wise person. In the book of Proverbs, for example, we read that a white head is a crown of glory. Wisdom and age are greatly esteemed. And so John here gives us this picture of a profoundly wise Jesus who looks after his people. And this gives us hope. Because we know that in his ruling wisdom, Jesus lets the church go through things, things which we would not choose for ourselves, but things which he in his profound wisdom knows that we need. He has our best interests at heart. When someone is wise, they know which path will bring about the greatest good. And if Jesus is wisest of all, we can trust that whatever path he has put us on will ultimately turn out for our good. And that becomes very important for us when we face times of difficulty and suffering. What we want, what we think we want during our suffering is to get out of the suffering, right? If you're going through suffering, you just want it to stop. To stop the difficulty, to stop the pain. But in God's wisdom, the Bible tells us that suffering shapes us far more effectively and profoundly than health and well-being ever could. Suffering gives us depth. Suffering gives us certainty when things go wrong. It shapes us into radically more mature people than we were before. I don't know about you, but I've met a few people who've lived a pretty charmed life. You know the type. They're relatively well off. They're good at sport. They're intelligent. They're beautiful. Uh, Nothing in their life seems particularly difficult for them. They're just kind of lucky, you know, and and if they apply for the job, they get it. And we envy them because wouldn't it be good to be them? Everything just seems to come so naturally and simply. But the reality is, friends, that people like this often have no capacity to deal with life as it is experienced by others. When real difficulty comes, people like this are ill-equipped. Suffering, when interpreted through the lens of the gospel, shapes us into Christ. It brings us maturity. When we suffer, we become like him. And that is a good thing. When we trust that Jesus is the wisest of them all. The truth of the matter is that if we knew everything the wise Christ does, if we were as wise as Jesus was, we would choose to be in exactly the same circumstances we find ourselves in today. We would choose our suffering. We would choose our hardship because any alternative would be worse off for us. 
If we were as wise as Jesus would, we, was, is, we would see that our current circumstances are the best for us in the long run. And so we can have hope because Jesus is wise. He's a priest, high priest that works, he's wise. But he can also have hope because of the other things. Now I'm just going to run through these quickly because we don't have time to explore them all. But he's got these flaming eyes. These are supposed to show us how he has penetrating insight. He, he can see our unholy deeds. It cannot be hidden from him. He knows who we are. And if you are honest with yourself, the fact that Christ knows who you are truly on the inside should terrify you. But you don't get burnt up. Christ is standing there amongst his church who doesn't get consumed by his holiness, even though he knows of the sin which lurks in each one of us. We also see that um, his face is bright like, like the sun. He's glorified. He has far more glory than we would ever have. <coughs> and when we, <coughs> pardon me, when we read the rest of Revelation, we see that even the sun itself disappears in the new creation <coughs> because God's glory is so bright that we don't need any light anymore. And he's powerful and permanent. He has these feet that are like bronze that has been uh, through the fiery furnace. There's a solidity, a permanence to him. And this picture evokes this idea of solidness that we can trust. He has strength. He is powerful. And when he speaks, he has authority. His voice is like thundering water as it cascades down a, a, a waterfall. These are all pictures of Christ. And then the final thing is he has the sword that comes out of his mouth. He speaks with the authority of Scripture. Every time we open the Bible and read his word, this is Christ with his double-edged sword piercing our hearts between bone and spirit, between bone and marrow, sharp enough to do that. And so Jesus has all this power and wisdom and strength and authority. And with all of this, he chooses to spend his time standing among the lampstands with his church. Isn't that amazing? This is the vision of the glorified Christ fighting for, interceding for, purifying and protecting his church. And that's the picture of Jesus we should have as we enter into what happens in the book of Revelation. Now, what happens to us when we see Jesus this way? What should our reaction be to a Christ who loves his church like this? Let's have a look. Verse 17. This is John's reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am for alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Friends, make no mistake. As one commentator puts it, to see Jesus today as he is, to see him in his glory, and for us to see ourselves as we truly are as sinners is more 
than we can take. In our sinful condition, the magnificence of his glory would simply overwhelm us as it did for John. All throughout Scripture, when people encountered the sight of God's glory, they fell down as though dead. But John did not die. Why? Jesus gives us the answer. He says, even though I am so glorious, even though I am so powerful, even though I am so mighty and wise and smart and perceptive, he is not coming to destroy the church. He holds out his hand instead and says, fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He has overcome death. He has already taken all of John's sins on himself and paid for it. He has not come to destroy John because the consequences of John's sin has already been destroyed. Even in his glory, he can lay his hand on John without John being burnt up in the fire, without him being destroyed. He, John is a sinful being. He should have been destroyed by God, who cannot stand sin. But here we see Jesus in his glorified state, stooping down to raise up this man who was lying on the ground as though dead. This is the grace of our Lord. But this can only be because Jesus here stands as the one who was dead and is alive again, who has already paid the price. And so where are you today? You see, there's only two places for us to be as we enter into Revelation. And John wants us to understand that we can only have one of two different states. There are only two categories of people. If you trust in Jesus, you find yourself in the John camp. Perhaps Jesus in his glory and goodness seems so far away from who you are today that it might make you feel inadequate that all you want to do is to hide your face away in the dust of the island of Patmos. But Jesus has a message for you. If you trust in him, fear not, because he is alive forevermore. You don't need to worry, because of all that power and glory and authority, he looks at you with gentleness, because your sin has already been paid for. That's the one category of person. The second category of person is those who are on the face, still on the floor with the face on the ground because Jesus is so glorious and you now see who you are. Though you did not believe in him when you were on earth and living, you now understand that you are not worthy to stand in his presence because of your sin. Jesus has a message for you. If you do not trust in him today, he is coming back. The king is coming you do not have forever to make up your mind as to whether you will follow him or not. Today is the day when you need to fall before him and turn from your sinful ways and trust him as king. Because he is coming to make all things new. <laughs> and you need to make sure that you are on the right side of history. Christ is coming. 
That's what the book of Revelation is telling us. Christ is coming. And for those who trust in him, it will be a day of joy because he will treat us as brothers and sisters and say, welcome, good and faithful servant, if you trust in him. Or he will come on the day and you will be judged on the, on the basis of your own works and he will say to you, depart from me, evildoers, into the fiery furnace which is prepared for you. Today is the day. You need to repent. He is coming. So be ready. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider you in heaven, in your majesty, in your power, in your glory and authority, your permanence and wisdom, the way you pierce even our hearts through your word, and how you know our deepest depths and still choose to stand among the lampstands of your church. Lord, what a blessing it is to be your people. We want to praise and worship you for that. Thank you, Lord, that you can treat us with gentleness because we trust in you. But perhaps not all of us here do. And so we pray that you will use these words said today to pierce hearts that we will come to trust in you as our Lord and King, that we will reject the world and everything it seems to offer, recognising that these are all temporal things, things that pretend to make us happy, but that ultimately just leave us more deeply dissatisfied with who we are and what happens in this world. And so we pray. We pray that today we will look to you to find our salvation. And whether that is for the first time, or for the thousandth time. Through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that you will work in our hearts right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.